So security and ESG are very close bedfellows. <laughs> uh, you're right to bring up how they interact on the board because ESG is the new kid on the block. It can't be quantified. People are trying to quantify it. Security is now becoming more quantified, but both of them share very, very important parts of board level discussions. They're continuously learning our processes and how we do things to be able to then kind of walk around that, you know, lead the conversation around those types of, you know, when it comes down to process, right, follow your process, but then if they've learned your process, then they're also to, speaking to you in languages that seem normal. Join me for all that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Lindsay White is a member of the ASIS UK chapter and regional director at Constella Intelligence. He is ex-British Army Intelligence Corps and moonlights as one of the intelligence officers on the Channel 4 TV show, Hunted. Mr. Lindsay White, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. Today's topic, six ways environmental, social, and governance principles influence security. Now, you know, we talked a little bit pre-show. This is a newer concept to me. I think I understand it, but let's start by defining it first, because I think a lot of our listeners, uh, this is something that's new and emerging, and we should really understand what it means before we start talking about it. Chuck, that's a great way to start things off, because I think people who know the definition of ESG still get a little confused with it, even once they know what it stands for, because ESG simply stands for environmental social governance. And what these are are goals that increasingly boardrooms are using to help the company become more of a sustainable, socially conscious and progressive brand on the world stage. So really ESG is synonymous with modern day best practice as a business. It's about being more sustainable. It's about treating workers better, but also treating customers better, treating non-customers better as well, because they're just as involved in the reputation of a brand as the people that work there and the people that are buying the services or products. So it's basically all about how, by our generation standards, a company is doing a good thing. And that's probably the best way to kind of describe what ESG is getting at. So, Lindsay, I like the definition. It kind of focuses the topic for me. It sounds like this kind of started out, you know, at the board level, uh, corporate governance and how you run a business, uh, really, you know, for investors. And as usual, they probably didn't talk about security at all. <laughs> Isn't that usually the way it works in our business? It brought security in as a secondary thought. Let's talk about how this ties into security, because as you and I both know, everything in a business has a security component, not always thought about internally. So talk about specifically how this, this really ties into that. So security and ESG are very close bedfellows. <laughs> uh, you're right to bring up how they interact on the board because ESG is the new kid on the block. It can't be quantified. People are trying to quantify it. Security is now becoming more quantified, but both of them share very, very important parts of board level discussions. And the challenge is about quantifying them. And that's what they share. And that's what I think first triggered our interest in the interaction between ESG and security. 
essentially ESG is all about the emerging risks to a company. Emerging risks that seem conceptual. They seem otherworldly, perhaps to someone in corporate security, because they're about the impact that the business has on climate change, the impact on pollution, whether they're zero carbon. Typically, that's kind of what people think of. But actually, like security, in certain industries, getting ESG wrong has a direct and potentially catastrophic impact on the assets under the protection of corporate security. So yes, they're both considered items on the board, which can't easily be quantified. And perhaps for some people, for some boards, security is a brand new concept that's considered at such a level because of the nature of data security, of the information, information universe that we live in. Actually, we're finding that both of these things are not only related directly to one another for many industries, but actually they're both being considered and they're both being taken more seriously in about, about the same time. Lindsay, give us some examples of how ESG influences security. If we look at some of the specific examples of how security and ESG interact with one another, I chose to look at the extractives industry. So as part of my job, I work with international enterprises, many of them in the extractives industries, who are facing these challenges head on. They are at the front line of the interaction between ESG and security, because if ESG isn't understood correctly, that has a potential catastrophic, potentially fatal impact and effect on the business that they're meant to be protecting. One example of this is with sustainability and the way in which governments themselves are beginning to take sustainability and global public opinion as it relates to environmentalism a lot more seriously, meaning that in order to have any success in a company, excuse me, any success in a country that you're operating as a security professional, you need to be aware of the fact that political unrest can be triggered by the kind of ESG moves that are made by the company. And as a result, not only are you dealing with perhaps interactions with people on the perimeter fence of the refinery or the mine or some other operational asset, which is of critical business importance, you're actually also going to be dealing with potential political groups potentially even military, government-sponsored agents who are intent on blaming you for the ills of not just the community, but also of the environment and the climate at whole. And we're starting to see this, that there are demands being placed on extractive industries participants who are needing to live up to certain ESG standards with regards to climate, with regards to social projects, so that they can avoid and mitigate the potential catastrophic impact of not only private actors operating as activists, but actually potentially government-sponsored actors um, that could have even more of a damaging and lasting impact on the operations and assets that the security professionals are responsible for protecting, but the business medium and long-term as well. You know, Lindsay, we have a lot of acronyms flying around in security nowadays, don't we? And a lot of special terms, 
a lot of concepts. One that cracks me up is convergence. Oh, uh, you know, we're going to think about bringing IT and physical security together. Oh, do you think? I mean, if you weren't thinking about that 35 years ago when you had your first computer, you missed it, right? I think ESG is different. It it may have sprung from some social media, from some social concepts, group think. I, I'm not sure where it came from. It is good business practice. It just has a more serious tone to me. I want you to ramp this up a little bit from a concept to something practical in the field we can understand. Tell me why we should take ESG seriously as security practitioners. Give me some examples. So for security professionals, specifically in corporate security, their approach to ESG and their interaction with ESG can be a matter of life and death. You know, whether it's near misses, whether it's civil unrest, whether it's political warfare in the kind of in the kind of places that a lot of these companies operate in, just just by the way that where resources are found globally, you can't pick and choose which places in the world you are going to find the next, you know, incredibly valuable source of a certain metal or natural resource. It's it's governed by 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 chance, by luck. And as a result, you are in a position you are in a position where you are going to be protecting a potentially very isolated, vulnerable site, which is of incredible economic importance to the company, and like a light switch can turn on you if you are not reading the room as well as you could be. And that's where ESG comes into things, and it has an immediate impact on the role of a security professional, whether it is activism, so the the physical risk to to some of your assets at the, the perimeter gate, whether it's local communities on the edge of the the perimeter of the the refinery or the mine that you're responsible for uh, protecting, whether it's poor leadership and, and, and accountability on behalf of your executives in a far-flung p- place in the world that is directly having an impact on the protests and, and union activities within the environment refinery the mine is in, um, these can lead to multiple multiple issues that could impact you and and, and your role. So I think it's... Talk about a new definition for remote working. We think of it as virtual in a post-COVID environment, but remote can mean a mountaintop 100 miles from a city. So we talk about remote working quite a lot in relation to security in general, right? We talk about how people should have their network security um, in place and that we need to be um, more careful about how we manage staff working remotely in their home office um, or, or, or their homes uh, in relation to what it was like when they were in an office, um, nicely air-conditioned and, and you know nicely secured in various different other ways. I think in security, what I found when researching ESG in relation to security was the way that remote working means something very different in the extractives industries, because there you have people who are working in very isolated, potentially unstable parts of the world, where a black swan event um, will lead to a catastrophe for the for the company, because um, there will be massive production delays, should there even be a little bit of disruption based on um, the sort of things that can take place in immediate communities, um, can take place politically. And of course, there's varying levels of uh, dependence you can rely on from law enforcement and agents, which in a lot of other parts of the world, 
you can rely on without without even thinking it so i think there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for the way in which security professionals start to be proactive about identifying esg threats i mean Ernest and Y last week came out with their top risks for the metals and mining community. And number one was ESG. I think number two was geopolitics. And that's because increasingly as part of a security professional's responsibility is not just reacting to the problem or mitigating the problem um, in, a, in a physical sense. Or it's actually now grown into detecting as early as possible that that problem is going to happen because a security problem for a lot of extractors industries, telco as well, again, isolated assets in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's actually a early crisis detection. It's not early problem detection. Any security issue is a crisis because of the, because of the nature of what security means in these places um, based on the resources that are immediately available, both official and private, to these companies. So the way that the company is dealing with um, community projects, the way that is talking about its environmental policies, the way it is being transparent from the executive level, you know, from an office maybe in New York or, 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 or elsewhere, has a direct impact on physical security. And it's the kind of intangible narratives that are taking place in 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 the digital public sphere you know on social media um you know that that actually is incredibly important now for people to be able to to harness and, and for protective services professionals to harness um they own that they own the they own the asset they own they are responsible at the end of the day for the protection of the assets under their control and the way they have to do it is by by understanding what the atmospherics are within not only the immediate perimeter of the asset they're protecting but actually the country that it's in maybe the region of the world that it's in because all of these things can have the butterfly effect and you know it's it's going to be increasingly driven by data it's going to be increasingly driven by the ability for protective services professionals to understand and champion esg not be scared about it, but actually realize that they're the ones that can champion it. Um, and they are the ones that ultimately can be responsible for the most important part of security for this industry. And I think it has it has amazing um, impact for other industries as well. Let's talk about the protection of data. Now, I was fortunate enough to work for Fox and Disney for about 10 years, a long time ago. And I became very heavily involved in the protection of intellectual property. I set up some pre-theatrical screening security. We used night vision goggles, trying to prevent people from making copies of movies on their camcorder and selling a pirated video. We lost as much as $3 billion a year to that. Fast forward 20 years, and now everybody's most important asset is first, people, and second, intellectual property that arises from people. Tell me how ESG ties into data protection. Increasingly, you're starting to see people taking more seriously the idea of data center protection, you know, even like software companies or companies that don't have big, valuable, fixed physical assets. Increasingly, companies differentiate themselves on IP 
on the value of data. And that means they're the behest of data centers. And data centers themselves are becoming increasingly important from a security perspective. We talk a little bit about when there's natural disasters, you know, the importance of proofing these things from not only security, but, but like a weather perspective. But actually, does every company's corporate security team have a unique take on the security of that key asset? They may not, which is why that kind of hybrid security, that hybrid protection is going to be, I think, a thing of the future. Increasingly, people are going to be expecting you to know specific, unique security policies that result uh, that relate to data centers. So if that's coming, if that's down the line, you can imagine how important it is to harness the, the low-hanging fruit as regards to ESG and atmospheric risks to fixed assets that are in very vulnerable and exposed parts of the world that have a track record of disruption to both the operations of the business, but of course, the security of them as well. I always look at security this way. All security is local, all security is personal, all security is now. Meaning we used to have a perimeter, didn't we? Something small. There is no perimeter anymore in security. There's no cybersecurity and physical security. It's just security. So your point about the data centers is well taken because your data center for a company in England, your redundant data center can be in Louisiana, in the United States. So your, your perimeter is the world now. And this is a much more difficult challenge. Do you think that having no perimeter on your security responsibility for the security professional is something that is more difficult for people to understand nowadays in our profession? So I think it is and it isn't. I think it does come across as very intimidating, the idea that your perimeter wall is now infinite and it's porous and it's a complex system uh, because now you're involving more and more variables. But I think corporate security professionals bring to this challenge the fact that on a daily basis, they are responsible not only for you know, critically important and timely uh, intelligence and security alerting from a variety of different tools and approaches to security they're, they're already they're, they're already used to living in that kind of world of having to work with hardware and software that actually they're probably best placed to to actually meet these challenges i i think they can they can run with open arms towards the kind of perimeterless security requirements because they are in a strong position to differentiate between what is a threat and, and what isn't based on the nuances and based on the instincts and based on their understanding and management that they have understood and generated for, 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 for years. I think an interesting example of this, you mentioned the UK, is that a couple of years ago, Vodafone reported that five of their 5G cell masts were attacked by conspiracy theorists who, based on fake news circulated hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away, believed that 5G caused COVID infections. The same thing happened in, in Peru, where actually you had some telecommunication technicians kidnapped on the back of this as they, as they approached to do some work on, on a 5G antenna. So you suddenly see the enormity of the challenge, but also corporate security at the end of the day are responsible for the protection of these assets and for the protection of people. So there's technology out there 
there's ways, you know, looking at the positive side, that you are actually able to harness these insights. Automation data does a lot of this for you to help you prioritize and help you plan your mitigation, your mitigation moves in response to some of these more global challenges that are nevertheless very, very local and very, very important for the protection of your specific assets that are under your responsibility. Uh, Lindsay White, Regional Director, Constella Intelligence. Good stuff, my friend. I really think you define this properly. And I and I, I got to tell you, it piqued my interest, right? The way you spoke about it made me say, wow, I, I have some other things to think about here as a security professional. And by the way, they're extremely interesting things to think about as a security professional, aren't they? We like to engage as security people. We like to get in the middle of it. We like to t- take charge of 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 tactics and strategies and and work with it so this gives us a lot to do and a lot to learn so thank you so much for coming on security management highlights my friend and good luck to you it's been a pleasure thanks very much chuck take care tony dudley is the vice president and ciso for cofence.com a phishing detection and response firm driven by a global network of millions of trained human reporters she's also a member of the board and executive committee for the national Cybersecurity alliance Ms. Tonya, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thanks, and thanks for having me. Today's topic, Business Email Compromise Schemes, BEC. Is it a security problem or a business problem? This is a great way to start the conversation. October is Cybersecurity Month, and for all my ASIS friends, there's no such thing as cybersecurity and physical security. It's just security. I know you're learning, but it's all part of one organization. Uh, And so we're going to break this down. It's so important for people in the industry to understand. Define a business email compromise scheme for us first. Yeah, so um, we know phishing emails typically have an attachment or a link or an attachment with a link in it. Um, Either, you know, taking you to a website with asking you for your credentials or to download malware in the background. But when it comes to business email compromise, it's really an email just asking for an action. And the FBI kind of coined this term um, several years ago when we started to see this tactics uh, spike up. So it's really just, it's an email that doesn't have either of those uh, t- um, tactics included in it. So it's just asking you for an action. So maybe, hey, I'm in a meeting right now. Can you get me some gift cards? Or, hey, I need you to wire me some money. Yeah, and they get, they, they're getting more and more sophisticated. I've almost been caught a couple of times I pay attention. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what happens to people that don't pay attention. And this makes me remember the old invoice schemes back in the day when I ran some guard companies. We get an invoice for toner cartridges for twenty five hundred dollars yeah. and just pay it. <laughs> we never ordered them because everybody's busy, right? Right? It's brilliant. Right. Right. Give me some. Give me some. Uh, give me some schemes you might uh, make people aware of that they, they weren't really thinking of. So the most common one that we see. So kind of two common ones that we see when it comes to the enterprise are. Um, asking for gift cards, right? So, hey, I'm on the way to a meeting. I want to be able to give the customer kind of a thank you gift card, or I need to get my niece who's, you know, in the hospital, some gift cards. So, you know, I need you to get me some gift cards. The the other one that we might see that is common is I changed my bank account. Can you change my bank account on my direct deposit? So we're on that direct deposit scheme, right? So if you are just getting paid and you know it's two weeks out till your next paycheck and your bank account bank details get changed by you know just somebody asking through an email 
you're not going to notice it right away, right? Or, you know, by the time you've caught it, you've checked your bank account, making sure your direct deposit got there, you know, so there's a little bit of delay and we see that as a frequent one that kind of, that happens. But you mentioned invoice. And so we actually see some around invoice schemes too. Hey, so-and-so is not here anymore. Can you, I need you to contact me instead to pay your bills. Or we see them asking for, hey, can you send me the accounts receivable register so that I can, you know, do, do some actions, right? So they're trying to get information about what, who owes you. So then they can maybe go target those other organizations with just a simple email saying, hey, so-and-so is not here anymore. Can you direct those payments to me? So that's another uh, big scheme that we see happening too, where it's, we, we kind of coin these as they're conversational, right? They're asking you to do something and then waiting for response back. And also what we've seen is that that initial ask isn't in that first uh, message, right? Because as we start to tune, looking for keywords, you know, direct deposit or gift card, um, that they have also tuned their tactics to say, hey, do you have a minute? And then, then follow up with maybe in their second or third exchange with that individual, what they're really after. Yeah, it, they're getting very sophisticated. Uh, every year I get hacked when I do the Black Hat show. And this year I actually got hacked during the GSX. One of my certificates expired on one of my websites. You know, IT guy didn't do it. Yeah. So I get a hold of him and I say, hey, you know, I got to get this up and running. Somebody stepped in the middle of that conversation with some emails pretending to be the help desk and wanted me to give yeah. them the, my GoDaddy login information. It was all timed right. So they were monitoring something to understand that. I almost mm -hmm. did it. And I said, why don't you have the guy call me back? Call the head guy over there. He never called me. So I knew it was a scheme. Yeah. I could have had all my 140 domain names hijacked. I mean, it's serious, serious problem. Yeah. Now, what I find that catches my attention in this is when I get an email, I read it. And if it doesn't sound, if the syntax, the rhythm, whatever you want to call it, of the email from the people I know doesn't sound the way they speak in my ear and mm -hmm. in my head, that's my first tip off. Give us some examples of how they've gotten, got, how these guys have gotten around uh, some of these innovations in email security. Because, you know, ransomware, those kind of things, we can kind of find those. But this must be more yeah. difficult to automate and find. Well, I think what you just said, right, reading it out loud and even just as you read it, like, you know, your eye might scan through it and just, you know, we've seen those little tests about can you read this paragraph with, with certain things missing, right? You, your brain still reads it. But it goes back to slowing down and reading it again, because what we what we do see is that the email, the phishing emails have gotten a lot better. Right. And maybe some of that is they've they've improved their, you know, languages. English is not their first language, but they they're also with those credentials that they that is is like the highest threat that we see with those credentials. They're scraping inboxes. So they're actually seeing what legitimate emails look like. Um, so it's a combination of things. Right. So just really t paying attention. And to, to your point, uh, one of the very first times we saw B this BEC message come through in 2015, when we had a threat research, a researcher that was, you know, interested in these things. And now he's kind of spun up and he really focuses specifically on business email compromise emails. But our CFO got an email and it was signed by our CEO, which, you know, he knew at the time that it wasn't from Rohit because Rohit doesn't use an iPhone and it was signed, you know, sent from my iPhone. Right. So it's all those little nuances that you really have to pay attention to, you know, especially if it's somebody that you already know, it's, which becomes critical 
when we see, you know, we just saw the American Airlines um, breach talk about how they logged, they got access to credentials and then they started sending emails with those credentials, right? So knowing who you're interacting with. And so if it becomes like, yeah, this is internal, but is this how this person normally interacts with me? Is this how they, you know, how they, how they, how they um, speak to me? It, what's funny is as I've been like talking about business email compromise and, you know, the direct deposit one being the, you know, one of the top themes that we see, I always remind people to tell your teams that how you, you know, how do you change your direct deposit? It's through your online portal, right? So not too long later than I saw an email that says, hey, try to use the portal, but it was down. It didn't, it wouldn't accept my changes, right? So still trying to use that email, but referencing what they know is their internal processes, right? So they're continuously learning our processes and how we do things to be able to then kind of walk around that, you know, lead the conversation around those types of, you know, when it comes down to process, right, follow your process. But then if they've learned your process, then they're also to, speaking to you in languages that seem normal. You know, that's a brilliant thing you just said, and I've never heard anybody focus it so specifically. My security certificate expires every single year for the last 10 years because my IT guy mm -hmm. sits on his hands and <laughs> doesn't do it. And every right. year I have a conversation with him about it, right? So somebody's learning right. the process that he knew it would expire. I This is amazing. Now, do, are there techniques we can use today to catch this stuff automatically? You know, software, of course, education is always the first thing, right? But how, how are we beating this? This seems a little tougher to beat than ransomware because there's all kinds of software that, that fights and finds that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, like I said earlier, when, you know, we know that um, we can put keywords into, you know, our, our secure email gateway, right, or some... You know, we, you know, we hear about AI and ML and those sorts of things, right? And, and how they get past those um, uh, formulas and algorithms is to change their keywords, right? And so at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual, right? Training them, educate, you know, just communicating to them. One of the things that I always tell people, you know, when, when we first, the reason why it's this business email compromise or in the UK, they refer to it as CEO fraud right is because it came from that high level leadership but now they've learned to go down into the organization right at lower levels to kind of intrigue people to want to interact with this person because it sounds like it's somebody of authority that they need to interact with but one of the things that i always tell people to you know tell your staff you know have your your individual leadership see if they can reach up how, how high can they reach up into the org to have the ceo say i will never send you an email asking for gift cards, right? So please don't respond to these. And so some of it is just that education and making sure that your leadership within the organization, right? The authority is making sure that it's known to everyone on the staff levels that I'm not going to ask you to do these things. So don't interact with them, report them, right? Get them off to the security team. So we know that who's trying to spoof us or, or trying to get people to take action. Now I understand your company had done some research on this. Uh, it, did anything jump out at you? when you started looking at the techniques, uh, anything e emerging that we need to kind of think about, this is really, it's kind of fascinating to me uh, how it's evolved from the C-level down to the mid-level mm -hmm. people. And the mid-level people are going to be, you know, kind of like busy and thinking the boss did something and they're going to act on it. So what did your research say about all this? 
So when we kind of dig into it, we really kind of just look to see how many how many times does it take to interact with that um, particular um, email that came in, right? And then you know how many times then did it did did they say to um, or did they take it offline, right? Because they know that if they keep it in email, it's going to get tracked and they're going to lose that conversation. So they might take it off to SMS or WhatsApp or right another. Um, medium where they're not going to be able to get tracked and really kind of engage. We actually had a um, somebody that we do business with reach out and say, "Hey, we had somebody on our team that um, that fell for a BEC, but they didn't just fall for one. They went it went months, <laughs> like six months that this person engaged with them, and they continued to um, build their trust and act as if they were the CEO. And this person kept." following the instructions that this um, threat actor kept asking them for. So um, it really is about, you know, the, the research that we've, that we kind of dug into at that, at that early stage, we're still continuing on that research to do, dig a little deeper and find out a little bit more about these, but it really is about how many times does it take? And, and on average, it was that second or third time where they really then asked for what is it that they actually wanted you to do or to send. Anything organizations can do right now to protect themselves against this? Education, of course, jumps to mind, but it's difficult to sustain that with turnover and things like that. What else can we do to kind of raise awareness on this? It really does come down to just um, letting your employees know. It's a difficult one to simulate while we, you know, we kind of the organization that I'm in, you know, we kind of specialize in fishing simulation. Um, It's a difficult one to simulate because as you're simulating it, it's hard to, you know, react to a response. So at the end of the day, this one really just comes down to communication and awareness and just making sure that everyone in your organization knows what these look like. Um, we haven't even stood up. We, we have a, um, a resource site where we post images of these, right? Just so that you can, you know, let people be aware of what the, what the types of context um, of these messages look like. Ms. Tonya, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Fascinating conversation. And uh, look forward to seeing you in person at one of the shows. For sure. Thanks you. Thank you again for having me.